0: Welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This time we're looking at another epic of classic Hollywood cinema, Ben-Hur. Widely considered one of the greatest films ever made, Ben-Hur had more than enough drama happen off-screen to fill all four hours of the blockbuster's running time. What is the story of Ben-Hur, and what impact has it left today? Well, strap into your chariot and follow us down the track. It's going to be a bumpy ride. In 1952, the biggest film in the world is The Greatest Show on Earth. Number one in America, France and Great Britain, and the winner of two Oscars, including Best Picture... Cecil B. DeMille's gaudy, exuberant circus epic is a new high in his extravagant career. He's 72 years old by this point, and directing 69 films in 50 years would wear down anyone. While most people would end on the high, it's not enough for Cecil. He wants one more. The Pitch? A remake of one of his early silent films, The Ten Commandments, a remake of the prologue to be specific, a nearly four hour epic following the life of Moses, the film will need to be the biggest ever made. He'll need to shoot on location in Egypt and he'll need four screenwriters, three art directors and five costume designers he'll work with some of Hollywood's biggest stars, including the greatest show on Earth's own Charlton Heston. Along with some classic religious novels, the film will also adapt the best-selling book of all time, The Bible. The Ten Commandments will be unprecedented and go on to be, adjusting for inflation, the eighth highest-grossing film of all time. It will be nominated for seven Oscars and win one, the Academy Award for Visual Effects. And yet, somehow, it will ultimately wind up a footnote in comparison to a film by Cecil B. DeMille's rival, William Wyler. It will be the final push he needs to sign on to a project so big, so extravagant and so ambitious that its name will become synonymous with Hollywood and epic filmmaking as a whole. Another adaptation of a classic Christian novel, taken originally from the Bible. Another remake of an older silent film. Another long and gruelling overseas shoot, supported by a rotating table of screenwriters. And another Charlton Heston vehicle. But The Ten Commandments, despite its scale will ultimately be overshadowed in everything but box office by William Wyler's Ben-Hur. In the early 1950s, in the wake of World War II, Italy's main currency, the lira, reaches unprecedented levels of inflation. In response, the Italian government bans movement of it out of the country, trying to help it stabilise. Here, film studio MGM find themselves with a problem. Having done extensive business in Italy, they've built up a large sum of lira that's now stuck in the country, unable to be transferred back to the United States. Short of money laundering, the solution looks clear. A film needs to be produced in Italy that can turn that restricted money into box office profits. Following the model of the Ten Commandments, the studio picks out a best-selling Christian novel to adapt, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. A bestseller from 1880, the book had already been adapted into a film once, a silent film in the 1920s. The book is now perfect for MGM's situation. It follows A Jewish Prince, Judah Ben-Hur, who is enslaved by the Romans and becomes a charioteer and a Christian. The events of the novel take place alongside those of Jesus' crucifixion, serving as a parallel narrative. Set in Italy, it has proven IP, will require a lot of investment and potentially yield a very large reward. The first step after deciding to adapt the text, is to get a producer on board. This is the easiest call MGM has to make, as there's a clear candidate. Russian-born film editor-turned-producer Sam Zimbalist has recently finished production on MGM's second highest-grossing film, behind only Gone with the Wind, Quo Vadis, a film about Christians and lions in the Roman Empire under the rule of Emperor Nero. Not only is Zimbalist on a career high, but he's familiar with making movies in this setting and genre. The more difficult question is, who should be tasked with writing it? Now, depending on who you ask, you'll get different accounts on the writing of Ben-Hur. The final screenplay is credited to no fewer than six different writers, but potentially many more were involved. The most well-known of the writers, and definitely the biggest personality, was playwright and political advocate Gore Vidal. Supposedly he is the first person approached to work on the screenplay, and he promptly declines, being placed on suspension by MGM as a result. We'll return to Gore Vidal later. The script is passed to screenwriter Carl Turberg, who writes the first draft and ultimately ends up as the first billed writer on the finished film. With a writer on board, at least for the time being, producer Sam Zimbalist starts looking for directors. He finds workman director Sidney Franklin and brings him on board. Franklin starts working together with Turberg And the two develop the script. They simplify a lot of the novel, removing some of the key aspects of the story of Christ, making the romance more simplistic and smoothing out the edges. Zimbalist hates this and is immensely dissatisfied with their work. When Sidney Franklin falls ill, he's quick to remove him from the project reaching out instead to one of the assistant directors on the original short film, one William Wyler. William Wyler is the director of classic Hollywood. He's the big name that every actor wants to work with, having earned 14 different actors Academy Awards for lead roles by the time of his retirement. Fresh off Roman Holiday, the film that introduced Audrey Hepburn to the world, William Wyler could not be a hotter commodity. And, much like Sam Zimbalist, he absolutely hates Turberg's script. Unfortunately for Zimbalist, this means Wyler is refusing to sign on to the picture. Ultimately, four things win him over. The first is the allure of the chariot race. Even though it's understood it will ultimately be directed by a second unit, the scale of the idea and the preliminary storyboards for it are so exciting that it's hard to turn down. The second is the opportunity to return to Italy, where he'd thoroughly enjoyed shooting Roman Holiday. The third was The Paycheck, allegedly the largest ever offered to a director for a film. The money is hard to turn down. And the fourth and final is the opportunity to outdo the only filmmaker who can really make an argument that they are more successful than him, Cecil B. DeMille. What better way to beat him at his own game than outdoing him in the battle of biblical epics? So, with Wyler convinced, Zimbalist gets back to work on the script he hires two playwrights. The first, S. N. Beerman, had written Quo Vadis, so has a proven track record. And the second, Maxwell Anderson, is known for his poetic dialogue. However, they too prove unsuccessful. Reportedly, Berman only works on the script for a month, and Anderson elevates all of the dialogue into a highly poetic tone. The consensus is that their script is ludicrously inaccurate to the Roman Empire, and that Anderson's dialogue is all over the place, as characters fluctuate from candid modern Americans to over-articulate, fantastical figures. So, again, director Wyler is looking for a new writer. And it's here we return to Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal will go on to be famous for a lot of things. He will be famous for being an out bisexual in Hollywood. He will be famous for his claim that everybody, knowing or not, is bisexual. He will become famous for his long-term relationship with stage manager Howard Austin and his claim that the relationship lasted because they never had sex once. He will go down in history for his left-wing political beliefs, his public feuds, both with right-wing political pundits and famous author Truman Capote, for his fiction, for his non-fiction, and of course, for his work on Ben-Hur. Working on a book about the Roman Emperor Julian, Vidal is immersed in Roman history already and finally gives in and takes the job. He works well with Sam Zimbalist, reviewing each scene with him individually before sending them on to Weiler. Moving away from Vidal just for a second, Weiler and Zimbalist's big challenge now is casting the film. In 1957, MGM opens an office in Rome where they set about casting the 50,000 different actors they need for the film. While that number sounds absurd, it does include extras. A total of 365 actors have speaking roles in the film, yet only 45 of those are considered in any way key characters. 50,000 makes 45 sound small. While a lot of the speaking roles weren't filled by Italian or Jewish people, Director Wyler has some method to his madness. The Romans are cast predominantly with British actors and the Jews with Americans. This is all in an effort to create some form of clear social class divide. Of all these roles, the most difficult to cast is the most high profile, that of Judah Ben-Hur himself. Marlon Brando, Rock Hudson and a pre-comedy Leslie Nielsen, all turn down the role. Paul Newman famously turns down the role, claiming he doesn't have the legs for shorts. Kirk Douglas is very interested, but ultimately Wyler turns him down, offering him the secondary lead, that of the antagonist Messala, which Kirk Douglas refuses. Poached straight from the competition... Charlton Heston is signed on to play the role of Ben-Hur. It's perhaps unsurprising that he takes the role, and Wyler has found his star. And for his production, it's a no-brainer. While Heston's about as far as you can get from Jewish, he was the star of both Quo Vadis and The Ten Commandments. Debatably more famous today for his five-term run as the president of the National Rifle Association in America, the Charlton Heston of the 1950s was a very different man. A liberal who'd endorsed multiple democratic presidents and was actually involved in pro-gun control movements, you'd not be remiss to assume that Heston would get on well with the equally leftist Gore Vidal. Sure enough, with shooting underway and rewrites happening on the fly, things seem to be working okay. Vidal is especially focused on the relationship between Messala, the villain whose role ultimately went to Stephen Boyd, and Heston's titular protagonist. According to Vidal, he added a homoerotic subtext to the script and was advising Stephen Boyd to play the character Missala as if he was in love with Charlton Heston. Supposedly, he advised Zimbalist and Wyler of this, and the three collectively agreed not to tell Charlton Heston about it, knowing that he, even before he became a surly conservative, would take the news very poorly. It's worth noting also that there's conflicting evidence of this, and William Wyler claims not to remember the conversation. But Vidal's intent is clear nonetheless. The choice stays secret from Heston until the 1990s, when Vidal reveals it in an interview for the documentary The Celluloid Closet. This starts a petty back-and-forth with Charlton Heston, who publicly claims that Gore Vidal contributed next to nothing to the script and that it's all lies. Gore Vidal is not the last writer to work on Ben-Hur. According to Charlton Heston, Vidal was producer-zimbalist's favourite, but Wyler's favourite was playwright and poet Christopher Fry. Midway through shooting, Gore Vidal leaves the project and Christopher Fry comes in, coming to the set six days a week and rewriting scenes as they go along. His focus is on the dialogue, making characters sound more regal and formal. The final script is an immense 230 pages long, where most Hollywood scripts clock in at 96 pages. Again, the writing credit goes to Carl Turberg from all the way back at the start of the process. The Writers Guild arbitration process deems Turberg has the best claim to authorship. Now the question is, how did the shoot go? Well, here are some quick stats. Alongside our fifty thousand actors, Ben Hur has fifteen thousand sketches of set and costume produced. 2,500 horses, 200 camels, and 300 different sets. One particular villa had 45 working fountains in it, requiring 15 kilometres of piping. Forty miniature ships were created for the film, and it cost $125,000 to merely dismantle the sets, along with the ship's, to prevent any future film shoots from using them. The movie took five years to prepare, a total of 340,000 metres of film was shot, and the 100-piece MGM Symphony Orchestra recorded the score over 12 sessions totaling 72 hours. And this is all without getting into the chariot race. Far and away, the most celebrated scene from Ben-Hur, the Chariot Race, is not directed by William Wyler. He directs the opening pageant scene and the victory celebrations at the end, leaving the bulk of the race to the second unit team. The two second unit directors are Andrew Martin, a workman, film and television director, and Yakima Kanutt, a rodeo champion and action directing expert. They each have an assistant director of their own, one of whom is spaghetti western legend Sergio Leone. The chariot race is shot in the largest film set built by this time. The set is hollowed out of a quarry and takes a year to construct, involving a thousand workers and costing a million dollars. It is 7.3 hectares in size. 400 kilometers of metal tubing are used to erect the grandstands with matte paintings placed above them to give the illusion of upper levels and surrounding mountains. 36,000 tons of sand is shipped in from nearby beaches and used to cover the floor. And then there's the race itself. Taking five weeks to film, directors Martin and Knut initially shoot the whole race with stunt doubles in a wide, presenting the footage to Zimbalist and Heston and explaining where they wanted close-ups. Both Charlton Heston and Stephen Boyd learn to ride chariots for the shoot, and Boyd opts to do all of his own stunts. Heston has to wear special heavy contact lenses during the shoot itself to protect his eyes from the sand and grit. One of the most notable shots in the scene happens by accident. Heston's stuntman, Yakima Knut's son, experiences an injury when he's knocked off the chariot, landing on his chin. Director Andrew Martin really wants to keep the shot, and in order to convince Zimbalist, suggests they follow it with a close-up of Heston clinging to the front of the chariot and climbing back on board. The effect is exhilarating, and arguably the most famous shot in the film. 7,000 extras are hired to cheer in the stands during the chariot sequence. However, as shooting progresses, the number required diminishes to only 1,500. The extras who are let go as the required number shrinks do not take it well. Poverty is rampant in Italy at the time and people are relying on the money to live. So protests begin to form outside the chute, requiring the police to be called in to intervene. Focusing back in on the chariot race, The 70mm camera lenses being used to shoot the film have a very limited focal range. European cars don't go fast enough to keep up with the chariots while keeping the cameras within the required range. So two faster American cars have to be specially imported for the chariot race shots. Each lens costs upwards of $100,000 ...and two are destroyed in the turbulent process of shooting the chariot sequence. Finally, after all the excess, all the trials and tribulations of shooting something of such immense scale... ...the film is edited, scored and ready for release. The stakes are high. MGM was already struggling financially before the film's completion and they've put most of their remaining assets into this production. If it isn't a massive hit, the company is likely to have to fold. But they needn't have worried. Ben-Hur is a success on every possible metric. Critically, it is widely acclaimed, receiving positive reviews even from people dismissive of its genre, such as esteemed film critic Dillis Powell, who says, quote, Nevertheless, if we must have films of this kind, this is the one to have. After all, the spectacular scenes remain. The sea fight, the triumph, a magnificent storm, and of course, the chariot race. A scene superbly shot, superbly edited, superb in every way. I have never seen anything of its sort to touch it for excitement. Close quotes. From an awards perspective, the film will remain nearly unmatched over half a century later. Winning 11 of the 12 Academy Awards for which it was nominated, it has a collection of awards never bested, but twice met by Titanic and Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. The one award it lost was for Best Adapted Screenplay, a move widely attributed to all of the politicking surrounding writers' credits and who actually wrote the film. In terms of William Wyler's competition with Cecil B. DeMille, he felt pretty good about this. Five more nominations and ten more awards than The Ten Commandments was nothing to sneeze at. Ultimately, however, Ben-Hur never beats The Ten Commandments commercially. But it's still immensely successful, more than enough to make it the highest grossing film of the year, though unlike The Ten Commandments, over fifty years later it's still not one of the ten highest grossing movies of all time. One area where Ben-Hur made no money, however, was in China where it was outlawed under the rule of Mao Zedong on the basis that it exhibited propaganda of superstitious beliefs, namely Christianity. The legacy of Ben-Hur is predictably positive and immense. Widely considered one of the greatest American films ever made, it frequently places highly on the American Film Institute's Best Of lists. Its consequences for MGM are debatably less positive, with the studio attempting multiple times to recapture the success of the film, restructuring their business model around releasing a high-profile epic at the end of the year every year, instead of having an even spread of budgets and scales of films. A lot of these epics flopped, pushing MGM back onto thin ice, to again be saved in 1965 by Dr Zhivago. In 2016, MGM works with Paramount to release another adaptation of the novel, also named Ben-Hur, in IMAX 3D. Unfortunately for them, lightning doesn't strike twice and the film bombs. Ben-Hur 1959 remains the definitive film version of the novel, in no small part because of its perfect storm of a team and because of its excessive, ambitious, turbulent production and clear ingenuity. What started as two steps south of a money laundering scheme and a petty statement in a feud between two major Hollywood directors ended up one of the most famous and influential films of all time. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. This episode was researched and written by Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll explore how America successfully sent two monkeys into space and returned them safely to Earth, two years before manned spaceflight. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZPODS, that's NZPODZ, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's NZPODZ.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.